Hello and welcome. This is Jonah Steinberg. I'm a Jewish chaplain at Harvard and the director of Harvard Hillel, and so glad to welcome you to this conversation about the themes week by week of our Torah readings. And I am so glad to be joined for this week's conversation by two wonderful people whom I will introduce in a moment. But first, as to our Torah reading, and God called to Moses from the burning bush. He called in a still, small voice, and he said, Moses, Moses. And Moses listened and answered and said, Lord, here I am. And the voice in the bush said, Moses, draw not nigh, take off your shoes, for you're standing on holy ground. And Moses stopped where he stood, and Moses took off his shoes, and Moses looked at the burning bush, and he heard the voice, but he saw no man. Then God spoke to Moses, and he spoke in a voice of thunder. I am the Lord God Almighty. I am the God of thy fathers. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face. And God said to Moses, I've seen the awful suffering of my people down in Egypt. I've watched their hard oppressors, their overseers and drivers. The groans of my people have filled my ears and I can't stand it no longer. So I'm come down to deliver them out of the land of Egypt and I will bring them out of that land into the land of Canaan. Therefore, Moses, go down, go down into Egypt and tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses said, Lord, who am I to make a speech before Pharaoh? For Lord, you know I'm slow of tongue. But God said, I will be thy mouth and I will be thy tongue. Therefore, Moses, go down, go down yonder into Egypt land and tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses with his rod in hand went down and said to Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. And Pharaoh looked at Moses. He stopped still and looked at Moses, and he said to Moses, Who is this Lord? I know all the gods of Egypt, but I know no God of Israel. So go back, Moses, and tell your God, I will not let this people go. Poor old Pharaoh. He knows all the knowledge of Egypt, yet never knew. He never knew the one and the living God. Poor old Pharaoh. He's got all the power of Egypt and he's going to try to test his strength with the might of the great eternal one, with the might of the Lord God of hosts, the Lord mighty in battle, and God sitting high up in his heaven laughed at Paul's Pharaoh. That is our reading as retold in verse by the American writer, civil rights leader, poet, and preacher, James Weldon Johnson. And the two wonderful people who have read it with me who are here for this conversation are, Dr. Linda Chavers, who is the Alston Burr Resident Dean of Winthrop House and Assistant Dean of Harvard College and a lecturer in the Department of African and African American Studies at Harvard. Dr. Chavers specializes in 20th and 21st century fiction and also the written narratives of enslaved black women. In her 2013 Harvard doctoral dissertation, she examined interracial themes in the literature of Richard White and William Faulkner and in addition to her academic work, Dr. Chavers writes for publications such as Gawker 
Dame L. the Offing and Rumpus, and Natalie Kahn of Harvard College's Fortzheimer House and class of 2023. Natalie is a concentrator in economics with a secondary in English literature. And among her current projects this winter recess is a reading of de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Speaking of which, let me say too that it is so heartening as we pray for the peace of Washington DC and are somewhat shocked to find ourselves doing that and pray for a deeper awareness of our all being siblings in this land as we record this conversation so heartening to begin it by retelling the story of Moses together as a shared heritage as we have just done. So Dr. Chavers, Linda, as we begin the book of Exodus, begin the biblical story of liberation in our Jewish calendar of scriptural readings, let me start by asking you how the story of Exodus figures for you personally in terms of your heritage and the area of your, the areas of your scholarly work. Um, thank you. And uh, I just wanted to add in here that I, being from, born and raised in Washington, D.C., it's, this has been especially uh, challenging and stressful. Um, but, I should have uh, mentioned, you have you have family members who are Senate staffers, I think. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yes. And and just family and, and loved ones in the whole D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the story of Exodus... Uh, it, what struck, what stayed with me was the very thing that you reached out about, which is this idea of being, sort of, it makes me also think of W.B. Du Bois's double consciousness, where Moses is of two lands, where he is, he is raised with the Pharaoh's family, but he, he's, he's Hebrew and he sees his family, I see him, he sees his people suffering, but he's not of them, or rather he's not in them, he's not in and among them, but he is of them, he's born from them, but he is not growing up with them, and I can say that in many ways, growing up African-American in Washington, D.C., and then being in private education my whole life, and then, yes, of course, ending up at Harvard University, and so on, and, and, and being of a certain, perhaps, having certain social capital, whilst also knowing that my people are, are being trans, transparent as possible, being killed in the streets. And I actually wrote a poem about this, about just when working in primarily white institutions and the small talk that we make, you know, after the weekend, hi, how are you, how was your weekend? And having to do that and feeling very, very strange because you're, you're exchanging niceties whilst, um, you know, throw insert name, Breonna Taylor, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, um, anyone, any person, any black person who has been harmed or killed by the police may have occurred in the last 48 hours and I'm exchanging pleasantries. It's a very, very strange thing to do. And so when, when Moses is, where he is, but he sees the Egyptian slay a Hebrew and he he gets upset, it's, I, I that resonated with me. Yeah, and I want to make sure we talk about what it means to occupy places of, of privilege amid 
a society in, in, in crisis because Moses finds he's not able to go back. He has to, he has to change his, his, his own personal way. And right. Natalie, growing up in Jewish community, we celebrate the story of Exodus around our Passover Seder tables, and we invoke it in all of our Sabbaths and festivals. But notably, the Seder narrative doesn't focus on the person of Moses. And so I wonder, and let me ask you in your own growing up, if and how the story of Moses coming of age in Egypt figured for you and what you thought about it and think about it. Yeah, I mean, I think to me, what's amazing about Moses is he really is someone who is able to, despite coming from an environment in which everyone thought very differently from him, right? He was raised in the palace of Pharaoh. He's really able to come into his own beliefs, right? So he he doesn't live in a vacuum. He really thinks about things. He thinks about the world. I mean, when he has that incident with the Egyptian, it's because he goes out into the streets to see what's going on, right? So he is someone who is really able to be alert and really able to come to his views um, in a way that I think sometimes can get lost in a, in, a, in a time like today, right? When we're being fed one narrative, right? But we really have to look for ourselves and look at the details and go out into the streets and see what is going on and really look back to the primary source material in a way. Mm -hmm. and, and Linda, it, it's ancient scripture, but somehow it's still so haunting to read how Pharaoh says to his people, look, the Israelites are becoming too numerous for us. Yeah. Let yeah. us deal shrewdly with them so that they may yeah. not increase. And it's so striking that the Pharaoh's harsh and even genocidal decrees, the imposition of hard labor and the casting into the Nile of the, of the Israelite male children really are all impelled by fear. It's haunting because from inequality and imprisonment in this country to prejudice against the recently arrived, not to mention how we've just seen the ways in which different kinds of protesters are related to differently by law for law enforcement and military force or the absence of military force. It seems in our times too that harsh decrees and tyrannical power really are impelled by fear. Um, yeah. yeah, I think yeah. Corey Robin, who teaches at Brooklyn College, has observed with some alarm. He's, he says, and I'm quoting here: "There's a powerful strain in our culture." that sees fear not as a negative or crippling emotion, but as a positive contribution to moral and political life. And I think we're seeing that play out in our times. And on the other hand though, and, and here's where I come to a question, I think about the women in our biblical story of Moses' childhood, the midwives and Moses' mother and his sister Miriam, and even the Pharaoh's daughter, all of whom in effect subvert the destructive aims of the Pharaoh undermining what we might call a tyranny of fear. So I wonder how you see that um, and, and how it may relate to the narratives that you teach, Linda, and, and what you see as being effective that we can do in our own times to be on the side of those women in our story. Well, the, so it's two things. The, in terms of what I teach and the paralleling with the American slave narratives for, for black women, when I saw, when I read that about the um, Pharaoh's daughter, Moses' mother, the midwives, um, I read it as, and I love that you use the word subversion. I read it as, as also subverting slash exercising reproductive freedom in, in the manner that they could. So 
reproductive freedom is going to look a certain way depending on what century or millennia, but it's still reproductive freedom. It is still taking control of, of a woman, a woman taking control of her births in the way she can. And we see it with these women subverting the rules when it comes to Hebrews and the Egyptians and deciding, okay, we're going to take care, we're going to raise him. We're going to keep him from, you know, being, we're going to keep him from being killed and raise him and he will have this life. And that was an exercising of reproductive rights because otherwise he would have been killed. Uh, Harriet Jacobs, in her narrative incident in the life of a slave girl, what she does, knowing that she's going to, to get pregnant, she knows this, it's a fact of life in the, um, in the 1800s that she if, she, if she has sex, she will be, she'll be pregnant. At the same time, her slave owner is grooming her for sexual assault. He is constantly preying on her since very early girlhood. So that by the time she's 15, she knows that she's facing sexual assaults. And whether she has consensual sex or she is raped, she will be pregnant. She knows that. So what she does that I see a parallel here with um, the Exodus story is that she engages in a consensual relationship with another white man, her neighbor. Now we can argue about what, what can consent look like when someone's enslaved, but I just in this context, as much as she could consent, she actively pursues a relationship with this other man so that her children are not fathered by her rapist, by her would-be rapist. That's very radical and powerful to do. Her children were still in danger. She still had to fight for their freedom. She also had to run away, but she didn't run away far. She actually ran less than a mile. She, she ran next, basically next door um, and stayed in this crawl space for seven years and watched over them. That, that way she could see what was happening with her children to make sure that they would be okay until she could guarantee their freedom. And so that was the, the parallel I saw there. Um, in terms of the, there's too many of them, there's too many Israelites, they've got to go, you know, what are we going to do? I had, I, I kind of darkly chuckled because it really reminded me, one, there's a long trope in African-American comedy about counting, like when there's too many Black people in a room, you know, that's when they're only because it's in response to when someone is accused of being racist or bigoted and they say, I have a Black best friend. And so it's like, well, why are you keeping count? And so this whole idea of, I apologize, hopefully you won't hear my dog barking too much. Um, okay. This idea of, of inclusion and tolerance, but up to a point, right? So up to a point, and then it's too many, it's too many black people, it's too many, we can't keep count. And uh, so that, that's what it reminded me of. Yeah, and, and as, you, as you talked about the, 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 the previous narrative, I was, I was thinking about, of course, about Miriam watching from the rushes and Moses' mother nursing him in the palace of the, of the Pharaoh. Um, and how that and how that is both a story of a captive state and and somehow finding some liberty as one as one can in it right. to whatever degree exactly right. um, and, and Natalie let me reach into our ancient rabbinic tradition and put a midrash a teaching from our sages on our reading table alongside the biblical text when when Moses finally goes out among his brethren, as the, as the Torah narrative tells us, and sees their suffering, 
the Midrash, the rabbinic teaching, imagines God saying, you, Moses, left aside your comfortable place and went to see the sorrow of Israel and acted toward them as siblings. So I, God, will now set aside the distinction between heaven and earth and come and speak with you, which leads up to the story of the burning bush, which on the one hand, the story of the burning bush is transcendent and otherworldly, revelatory, perhaps difficult for us to imagine or see as in any way relating to our own personal experiences. But on the other hand, God speaks to Moses out of a lowly shrub. And I think about how Elizabeth Barrett Browning in Aurora Lee said, earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. So I wonder, Natalie, how you consider the encounter at the burning bush. Is it a moment we can relate to or entirely mysterious or both? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really, it's kind of a turning point because I mean, you could argue that Moses seeing the slave killed in the street is is really the, the turning point for him. But I think not quite because he still runs away. He runs off, he's scared. He doesn't know what's gonna happen, right? And this is really his point of inflection. This is really where he has this realization that his destiny is to save the people of Israel, right? And so I think, yeah, I mean, I think that, that it really, we all have those particular moments in our lives that really determine how we think, what we're passionate about. And I think this is really that for Moses. And I think that is something that we can take generally to any of our lives um, about causes that we care deeply about, right? What is the defining moment? What is that moment that causes us to stop back, stop and think and say, wow, I really do care about this. What is it? I'm so glad you put it in that way, Natalie, because it's very human, the story of Moses, how he has an initial, as you've just said, I'm sort of repeating what you've just pointed out and underscoring it, because I think it's really valuable in this present moment. Moses has an almost instinctual reaction, and he acts out of it, and then he retreats. He's, he's not sure what he's done or what to do next, and it takes quite a while for him to be ready to come back into Egypt and confront the Pharaoh. And I think perhaps in our own times too, we have an initial reaction and indignance. We know we're seeing something wrong. So we say, or we do something about it. And then for some reason, it, it takes us a while to, to, to figure out then in a, in, a, in a more planful or a more systematic or a more um, a more deeply actualized way. How are we going to step into this as more as more fully realized actors on this stage and and try to and try to change what we've initially reacted to? Um, and, and Linda, you know, we just celebrated the start of a new calendar year, um, and there's been a lot of happy anticipation about 2021. Um, yeah. But I bear in mind that in the south of this land before the Civil War, that January 1st was hiring day, um, yeah. full of horrific heartbreak, um, mm -hmm. as very right. often family members held as property were rented away from one another yeah. by their masters. And yeah. I know that Sister Harrison, a former slave, when she was interviewed, and this was in 1937, so not so long ago in her old right. age said, that's where that saying comes from, that what you do on New Year's Day, you'll be doing all the rest of the year. 
and, and Claude Brown mm -hmm. writes about it in Man, Child, and the Promised Land. Mm -hmm. Maybe a lesser known, but perhaps somehow an, an almost more indelible memory than the fact that the Emancipation Proclamation was also issued on New Year's Day in, in 1863. Right. So I wonder about that history and perhaps how it's for, for all too many of us sort of hidden in plain sight and what right, right. more we can do to remember and memorialize and how it might help. Um, well, I was just thinking, Harriet Jacobs writes about that too in Incidents, about how New Year's Day, is, that was also New Year's Day and what happens on New Year's Day in terms of the split rendering of, of families is exactly why she did what she did because by having these children that were not her owners, her slave master's children, he couldn't do that. He wasn't able to do that. Um, she talks about the Latin phrase partis sequitur ventrum, which uh, in Latin, it means the birth follows the mother, the condition follows the mother. Um, and that was the prevailing code for, or the prevailing legal code in England and, the, and therefore the colonies in the United States. And then after the revolution in the United States, which meant that children, children born to enslaved women, their condition were, they were also enslaved. So that's what she's going by. That's why she's like, I cannot have my children bothered by this man. And so she writes about New Year's Day there. And you mentioned the Emancipation Proclamation, right? It was issued New Year's Day. And I think if we think about it, similar to, to acts in the late 20th and current 21st century, it was an empty, empty gesture though. It was, it was symbolic rather than real because the Emancipation Proclamation only affected the states. It couldn't, it couldn't address the the seceded states because they had seceded. Um, so those were enslaved, and those seceded states were still enslaved. Um, and so it was it was more of a tactic. It was a military strategy. It was showing like this is what we're going to do, and um, it kind of fell on bittersweet ears for those who were enslaved or newly freed. Um, in terms of what we can do, uh, I think just that, I mean, the, the, the retelling or rather the, I don't want to say correcting of history, but the retelling of, of history over and over again until we get it right, or even after we get it right, and then retelling it over and over again. Uh, that's, I wrote earlier this summer an article in the Boston Globe about what white people still don't understand about racism is the fact there there was never this end there was never this harmonious era it was you know in slavery civil war reconstruction and the backlash to reconstruction and many myself included would argue that what we're experiencing right now including yesterday is the backlash to the election of of the first black president um and so even that wasn't new that the backlash we're experiencing now occurred hundred years ago as well. So I think it's about re-examining that history and the fact that we don't really study what occurred after Reconstruction, even though that's really what we're dealing with now. So 1890s through, I would argue, the mid-1900s even, 1950s, you could say until the Civil Rights Act of 1964, if you want, that um, segregation, vigilante justice, this is when the Klan comes out, this is this is when sundown towns start being coined that, this is when we have 
the um, the racist backlash riots in Tulsa and in Wilmington, uh, North Carolina. But we don't study that. I mean, or perhaps it comes up now at the the college level or even the graduate level. But it's not in terms of our national secondary education. This is not what's told. So we don't tell this story the way it should be told. I've learned so much recently from watching Professor Gates's uh, PBS documentary on Reconstruction, which is such a, now that I've seen it, seems like it, it, you can hardly watch the Ken Burns Civil War series that, that so many of us have also seen with also, without also watching yep. as, as a companion piece. Yeah. Uh, Professor Gates's uh, for the, the four-part series on on Reconstruction, and I come back to that opening narration, the the, the James Weldon Johnson that we shared together, and God sitting high up in his heaven laughed at poor old Pharaoh, but of course there were also tears, a great wailing in Egypt, and this too in the United States is not an easy time, and if there are birth pangs of of greater liberty, they 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 come with, um, as with the, the story of the ancient Israelites becoming free from slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh feels that something's being stolen from him, um, and here in America, we hear people being told that their country is somehow being stolen from them, stolen by way of an inclusive democratic process, and we see how some people react with a penchant for familiar authority and habitual power and with a proclivity for tyranny that arises out of fear, you know, to which we may well say with Moses, let my people go or, or, or let go um, in, in some way. Um, Natalie, as we come to a conclusion of this conversation, and this is a story that we have been telling literally for millennia. And every time I sit down at a Seder table, uh, and I'm sure as, as, as you too, um, I really reflect on the fact that, that people like us have been telling this story to one another for so very long. Um, and yet somehow maybe that also, I don't want to say it deadens our ears to it, but we get so used to it that it may not speak to us with the same sense of urgency. So I wonder, Natalie, how you feel about that in this moment. Um, you know, not it's not Passover time, but we're beginning the book of Exodus. We're hearing this sort of this dawning of our people's liberation, liberty from from captivity in Egypt, um, and we do that every year. So again, we can get used to it, but I think somehow it has to speak to us with a more um, with a more urgent voice. Uh, as we look around ourselves. But but Natalie, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is really a time when we're becoming aware in many ways of many of the things that we just, I mean, this is obviously a vague statement, but many of the things that we kind of just took for granted and, and didn't really stop to think about. Um, and I think that we're we're pushing back against against that, right? Against a certain narrative. Um, and so, so in a way that if we can continually remind ourselves that we are continually fighting, right? We're fighting some kind of enslavement, whether it's mental enslavement, uh, whether it be racism, whether it be any kind of uh, political discrimination, et cetera, um, that we are fighting this kind of war, whether it's a culture war, which is also something that, that we are fighting. And so I think that, that that is a continual relevance that the Exodus story has to us. Um, and I think 
I think also, as I mentioned to you, Rabbi Jonah, as I was looking over this week's, uh, the beginning of this week's Torah portion, what struck me also is the attempt of the Egyptians to quash any sort of resistance, right? Um, and really stop it in its tracks by cutting it off completely. And I think this can be analogous sometimes to the ways in which we shut down dialogue um, that can be productive, right? I think instead of, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that Pharaoh would have said, well, let's all have a chat and talk about it, right? But I'm saying, I think if we're looking for ways in which this story is still relevant in a way, I think sometimes stopping and talking to people and hearing about their experiencing experiences and hearing why they believe what they believe instead of completely canceling it or pushing it aside is really something that I personally value and I'm sure both of you value as well. Um, and so I, I believe that that really is a recurring relevance of the Exodus story. Yeah, you know, I think about um, people often quote the end of uh, Martin Luther King's mountaintop speech, of course, the end of the of, of the Moses journey, the verge of the promised land. But but earlier in that speech and and back toward the beginning of the Moses story, you know, Dr. King said, we've got to stay together and maintain unity. You know, whenever Pharaoh wanted to prolong the period of slavery in Egypt, Dr. King said, he had a favorite formula for doing it. What was that? He kept the slaves fighting among themselves. Right? And we read about that a little bit in our, in our Torah reading this week. And then Dr. King went on to say, but whenever the slaves get together, something happens in Pharaoh's court and he cannot hold the slaves in slavery. What the, when the slaves get together, that's the beginning of getting out of slavery. Now let us maintain unity. Um, but being together means, as you say, Natalie, um, getting to know one another, listening to, to one another. Um, and, um, and there's a lot of um, othering that happens. Um, and, and, I, and I think you're right to say that if there, if there is going to be an American unity, I say this as a Canadian, but I feel it poignantly having lived in this country for so long, um, that, that we've got to remember and, and actualize a, a, a unity, a sibling unity together. I'm so grateful to both of you for, for these few moments together and, and onward in, in making that actual, in, in resolving again and again on, on being community together. We're so wonderfully able to do that at Harvard in this sort of tremendously uh, privileged showcase of, of togetherness. Um, but it's something that's, that's urgently needed uh, far and wide. And so I hope we, we find ways of, of, of modeling it and, and sharing it and, um, and bringing it outward from, from these moments of togetherness that we, that we share so naturally where we are um, and perhaps take for granted, as you've said, Natalie, that 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 um, are not to be taken for granted. They're they're precious, and and um, and it's a privilege and a joy. Um, so thanks, really, to both of you for opening the book together and looking into it, especially in this in this moment as we as we pray for peace and and pray for for being good siblings to one another. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rabbi Jonah, and. Professor Travers, it was a pleasure to meet you. It's a pleasure to meet you too. Yeah, that's great. I was a, um, I got my PhD here. So when I was here, I was a restaurant at Boho. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sure. Best house, of course. <laughs> Thanks both of you so much. <laughs>